0: came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response.
1: Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place.
2: Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding.
1: And I am Xenia Chmutena.
2: This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen.
1: Thank you for tuning in.
2: Hey Sonia, how
1: are you? Hey Jason, I'm good, how are you?
2: Good. Welcome back, everybody, to Disaster Constructed. We are wrapping up the season today.
1: Final episode. Woo-hoo.
2: Yeah, it's been... Uh, like, since we moved to publishing every couple of weeks, it really extends the season. And I think, like, it gives you a, a broader time frame to, to reflect on, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, no, totally. And I, it's been interesting few months as well. Interesting in quotation marks, isn't it? So I feel that everything that we've been talking about resonates more somehow Mm. not that disasters don't usually do but more than ever
2: hopefully the people that have joined us this season you know to come along in these interviews and discussions with um the incredible guests that we've had have appreciated the, the kind of nuance of looking at how people research disasters in different ways. You know, I find it really exciting just to, to listen and learn from everybody that joined us talking about positionality and methodologies, their approaches to doing research in a just and anti oppressive way, thinking about power, being insiders and outsiders. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just so glad that we put this together as a, as a season. I've learned a lot about you.
1: Absolutely. And what a journey as well. It's been great to curate the season as well with the editors of the special issue that was released in disaster prevention and management. And that's the special issue Emerging Voices, which is now out. So yeah. for audience out there, if you haven't seen it yet, please check it out. It's mm. absolutely amazing. Um, we'll put the link in the show notes, of course. And it's been great to have so many fantastic early career researcher guests with us, just so much inspiration. You know, we keep saying this in every episode, I think we've repeated ourselves like 50 times, but really, um, these guests have been inspiring, and we've learned so much from them. And really, they made us think about our own practices. Um, And of course, as always, I absolutely loved our audience participation. So. Uh, episode. So thank you um, to all of you for giving us time and for um, sending us your snippets and reflections. And it's been great to have a couple of live streams. I absolutely loved the live stream that Jamie and Carly and their comrades and colleagues um, organized with us on incarceration and homelessness. That was just so powerful. If you missed it, um, check it out on our YouTube channel. But Jason, The question I ask you in every wrap-up episode, give me some numbers. So what has been our most popular episode and where are we with downloads? And I think we're approaching 100th episode, right? Or have we we approached it and just I've missed it completely?
2: (laughs) Well, so a couple of different different, uh, questions there, but yeah, I want to give you an answer on that episode number question. Because I think you're right. I think we're... I, I Yeah, I can't bring it up uh, quickly, but I think we must be at about 100.
1: Ooh, 98! 98, 98! 98. 98. Wow. Okay, two more episodes. So it, hundreds episode will be early next season.
2: What I have noticed is really consistent uh, audience numbers like through season um, five mm-hmm. and all the episodes pretty much being downloaded by the same number of people, and I've seen that continuing in Season 6. And I couldn't really say that any are more popular than others. They're all pretty much following the same trajectory. And um, when I look at our previous episodes, like every episode is reaching about a thousand people after a year.
1: Nice. I think it's great that the audience is widening and diversifying, and we can see it um, from our Twitter following as well. So thank you all for for supporting us and for following us and for being the part of the conversation.
2: Some of you may have heard us talk about our producer, Colin Bowie, who's uh, been helping us for many seasons with the podcast. He's moving on to new opportunities, um, graduating from UF, So um, he won't be working on the podcast with us any longer. And we just wanted to thank him so much for the work he's put in. In past couple of years to help us mm. get going. Thanks to Colin, yeah. Yeah,
1: thank you, Colin.
2: So what we're gonna do um, as we always do at the end of the season, is to play you some of our favorite clips from um, the different episodes and then just um, discuss why why those are meaningful and see what happens and just have a discussion about some of the key themes emerging from the season, right?
1: Let's go.
3: we felt that it was important to retain each of our individual voices and opinions rather than having to present a very sanitized, unified version of, say, a report. Um, And I have also come across other papers in this special issue, which actually used similar dialogue-based format. And I, I really appreciate that disaster scholarship can now move forward where we don't have to focus on agreements and consensus building about use of definitions and concepts but actually documenting how our lived experiences and differences are more important uh, to retain the diversity in our field perhaps this is the first essential step so my work is not a theory I, I i need to start with that I, I really care and love the people I work with, and I would never want to harm them or take advantage of the trust they have put in me uh, for the sake of, of research. And second, I couldn't find a methodology that spoke to me completely because all of the positive, positivist methods I came across didn't seem a good fit for me to develop this work on the Minutical and their resistance movement. I always knew I would never be in a analytical, impartial, <laughs> positivist researchers. And lastly, I also struggled with the idea of ownership over knowledge, because where I came from, knowledge is to be shared freely among everyone and not to be sold or monetized.
1: Well, I think what's been really prominent, and we can hear this in these two teasers, are the ideas of dialogue and listening. and. Quite a few of the contributors to the audience participation episode talked about it as well. Um, Elon, JC, Laurie, Per, all of the kind of senior established researchers also really highlighted the importance of dialogue and listening. But also of the ownership over knowledge and who and how we share this knowledge. And let's talk about this latter part a little bit. But before we do, I want to read, I'm sure you're surprised, right? Um, <laughs> this piece, uh, from Astra Taylor's, um, latest collection of essays called "Remaking remake in the world. And she writes about listening in her chapter, the right to listen. So I, I start today. We're constantly reminded of the importance of free speech and the first amendment. We excel freedom in the expressive realm. Is there some corresponding principle of listening worth defending? The idea that the right to listen to one another should be defended in a democracy seems strange. That's probably because we lack a shared vocabulary or framework for understanding listening as a political act. We pay pay lip service to the idea of listening. Stage-managed town hall meetings at which politicians and candidates respond to curated questions from a screened audience are a familiar part of the political landscape. In 2017, Mark Zuckerberg embarked on a highly publicized national listening tour, which yelled photographs of him riding a tractor with a farmer, going to church in a small town, helping out on an automobile assembly line, and so on. No one really imagined that Zuckerberg would listen to anything the people he visited had to say. We expect powerful people to be talkers, not listeners. Philosophers, too, have thought mostly about speech biased, perhaps understandably, towards dazzling utterances. When Aristotle declared man a political animal, he argued that what distinguishes us from other creatures is our capacity for rational discourse. Modern philosophers have developed a framework of deliberative democracy in which oration and argument, declamation and debate play out in an idealized public sphere. Careers have been made studying speech act theory which examine how certain verbal expressions do things in the world a judge declaring a defendant guilty for instance or a couple married a corresponding listening act theory doesn't yet exist but to listen is to act of that there is no doubt it takes effort and doesn't happen by default as anyone who has been in a heated argument or who simply tried to coexist with family members colleagues friends and neighbors well knows it's often easier not to listen. We can tune out and let others' words wash over us, hearing only what we want to hear. Or we can pantomime the act of listening, nodding along while waiting for our turn to speak. Even when we want to be rapt, our attentions wane. Deciding to listen to someone is a meaningful gesture. It accords them a special kind of recognition and respect. End of quote.
2: Well, I think that's a really nice piece. and. Um Definitely aligns with a lot of the things we heard in this season. And I'm thinking, like I was thinking of how Mayra said, you know, openly that, like, I'm biased for oppressed mm. people, you know, and mm. Mm. I have an agenda for change as a researcher. And I think that's a challenge for, for all of us to think about, even if we don't agree, because we need to, as researchers, come to terms with the, the different options for how to approach our work. Are we going to claim objectivity? Are we going to claim mm-hmm. that we have no bias or agenda? Or are we going to embrace um, embrace an agenda and talk about... like <laughs> We don't usually talk about the different philosophical underpinnings of
4: mm.
2: these approaches. We We talk about the methodology and say, this is how we do the research, but rarely do we step back and say you know, these are the, the hard questions about truth and life and reality and knowledge that actually drive my approach. And I think uh, it's been amazing that um, our guests this season have helped us to step back, I think, and ask some of those difficult questions. Um, I've, I've loved it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's that the way that that knowledge is shared, right, with kind of that pretends to be to be unbiased. Mm-hmm. Um, Catherine McKittrick in, in Dear Science, you know, the book that I think we've over discussed over and over mm-hmm. again, you and I, um, sh- she kind of says it so nicely in that certain frameworks, methodological frameworks are um, preferred, right, mm-hmm. um, in, in the way that we see the data. And by doing that, what happens is that basically, the research that looks or talks about oppression very often ends up um, turning marginalized people into subjects that simply serve as just academic data, right? They become nothing more than academic data. And I think it is this kind of power of turning lives into data that academics, I think, very often maybe don't even realize they have, or if they do realize they have, and I'm sure some do, many do, they don't want to give up. Um, And that brings us to our next section.
3: So I find myself constantly crossing the categories of insider and outsider. And while I think these are useful ways to examine one's position, uh, I don't necessarily think any researcher or practitioner inhabits only one position. Rather, depending on the form of engagement, we have multiple positionalities at the same time. Do you know, where I was working in Mexico, I realized that you were not very taken into account in the decision making processes for disaster risk reduction, even when we had like very cool ideas. Uh, and that's why I started also looking for other spaces and I joined actually the NGO World Youth Network. Uh, based on that, and all the literature I could read during my doctoral research, I could confirm that youth were not properly represented, even when they are also some of the so-called vulnerable groups. So uh, then it didn't make any sense for me, right?
5: In my experience as a development practitioner on top of being a scholar, I have seen how inclusion is often translated into technical terms, counting, naming, and classifying the vulnerable and having them, you know, in quotation marks, participate in activities that would somehow help fix their vulnerabilities as deemed appropriate by experts. Now, on one hand, you see this additive approach being applied. Um, add women, children, and the elderly people with disability and so on and stir um where including these groups become you know a, a perfunctory and a critical exercise of box ticking but perhaps what warrants for me deeper attention are two things first is how rendering technical this thing we call vulnerability results in its depoliticization wherein we delink vulnerability from broader structural political issues and processes that shape it. And second is the erasure of local and indigenous knowledges while privileging expert scientific and, dare I say, Western knowledges in in reducing disaster risks.
2: So as we listen to those clips from Vanika, Miguel, and Kaira, it just makes me think of um, the sensitivity with which they all approach the people who are participating in their research and like the way that they're so reflective on on who they are as researchers. And it comes back to like the, that previous discussion about claims to objectivity and, um, you know, trying... Like trying so hard to remove yourself from the research. And of course, that's, that's coming back to kind of a positivist approach to, to science. And so I think what, what we heard from all of them is, um, in their, in the, their episodes, um, was just a really, a really healthy engagement with issues about of power, positionality, um, objectivity. And their willingness to ask themselves questions about like who they are, why they're doing this work, the way that they engage intentionally with taking time to understand context, understand mm-hmm. people who are, who are being researched, even problematizing that idea of, of the research subject and doing research on like observing people. Mm-hmm. And this gets back to like, like, philosophy of research and ethics of research and caring for people and having relationships and one thing i think this season that we heard from a lot of our guests is like that a lot of them really care not only care but actually get to know people and be in relationship with people and like as soon as you do that like how can you still claim to be unbiased if you're willing to be in relationship you're, you're kind of compromised in terms of being a good positivist researcher, right?
1: Mm. You know, actually, that's, that's such a good way of explaining this kind of being in a relationship with someone. And we talked about this quite a lot, um, I think was Darian, you know, a couple of seasons back about our dependence on to one another. Mm. And it's fascinating how Our training still, nevertheless, in in the institutions that um, keep talking about decolonization, right? Mm -hmm. We're all decolonizing absolutely everything (laughs) uh, these days, woohoo! Nevertheless, we never talk about the power relationship that that, that come in research, no matter what we do, right? No matter how we do it. And I wish if perhaps our research methods modules were framed from the relationship point of view, be that good relationship, be that bad relationship, yeah. um, research would probably be very, very different, right?
2: True. Uh, what it usually does in an institution is tries to protect the institution from challenge mm. to its systems by ensuring representation in, in the system. And we see this with like feminism as well, being mm. co-opted, yeah. by by the very systems that it's theoretically supposed to oppose and by guaranteeing representation in that case to women in the systems that are oppressive you can you, it can be co-opted yeah but i see the the same mm-hmm. kind of thing happening with these uh narratives of decolonizing institutions or decolonizing like a curriculum which usually Mm. just ends up being like changing your reference list
1: yeah yeah
2: which you know does something but it's not the same thing
1: (laughs) no no not quite and i i know we keep banging on about it but you and i kind of try to i guess pick this out a little bit in our um, pedagogy paper that recently came out um in that you know we have really reflected on what it is we're doing as built environment educators. Mm. And we know that there is a lot of goodwill out there. But I think very often we... It's not that people don't want to do something different, right? And really not that people don't want to challenge the disciplines at the institutions, but the institutions have a lot of power, right? And all the kind of approvals and curriculum committees and all that, all that really limits what we can actually do in the classroom. And that is also limited by the disciplinary boundaries. And let's listen to our next couple of teasers first, and they'll talk about disciplines.
3: Reflecting on how you sort of framed the question by saying um, disaster studies hasn't changed so much, to me, is actually interesting, I think, because... When I got to know the field, my impression was that maybe the field is further in that conversation about how the research we do and how we do our research is very much political and how something um, might have to change to make the field more inclusive, which mm. is something that I feel is, um you know, it's a conversation in those other communities I'm linked to as well, but I think it hasn't come as far. Mm. And that might also have to do, of course, with the people I, I met when I first um got into the field of disaster studies which might not represent the entire field but to me that's been really inspiring to think there's some you know there's some people further in that conversation and to think about how different fields of scholarship there can also really learn from one another and push one another to to change their practices and to
0: improve the way we do research and how we work with one another. I think a big part of disaster studies um uh, is rooted in, in disciplines where the myth of objectivity, objectivity and neutrality in science still exists. So a lot of scholars, I think, uh, believe that if they look, if they look at oppression or, or if they talk about oppression, they're gonna lose their objectivity.
1: Well, another theme that was quite prominent in this season is that reflection on disaster studies as discipline, you know, or is it a discipline? Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say that it's, it's a debate. I don't think it is. I think many of us, most of us accept that actually disaster studies, disaster scholarship is really quite interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary, and that is the beauty of it, right? But also, it creates quite a few problems when some people don't want to give up their disciplinary silos. And mm. again, you know, you, as and I, we wrote about it and our critique is not a verb uh, paper. Mm-hmm. But, and you know, I never really thought about it kind of seriously. Um, I, I per- personally didn't really care, you know, whether it's a discipline or not. Um, but then again, I'm going back to Catherine McKittrick here. I read... Um, Uh, Dear Science book, Mm -hmm. and particularly her essay called The Smallest Cell Remembers a Sound, where she really talks about the kind of the problem with disciplinary settings. And I want to read a very, very small um, part of that um, chapter. And so she writes, In academic settings, identity disciplines function to uphold misery and empire. And the segregation of ideas and idea makers, precisely because all disciplines are differently enflashed and classified and hierarchized. If identity is biologic, or so, or to be more specific, narratively biologized, are there identities that make and produce and uphold discipline in categories not also biologizing disciplines? If so, all disciplinary thinking is laden with colonial logic, and all disciplines are enflashed. As gendered, raced, sexed, and so on. End of quote.
4: Wow. And
1: I really love how she just unpicks this whole problem with, with being a discipline, right? In that small paragraph. And I mean, if you haven't read this essay or the book, you know, Dear Science and Other Stories, please go read it. Um, it, it really did something to, to me to the way I think. Yeah. You know, and I absolutely love how Catherine McKittrick um, writes. But but that particular reflection on disciplinary silos and the power that it has and kind of the power that it wants to hold um, is really quite fascinating. And I think this is something we really need to think about um, as we talk about disaster research going forward.
2: Yeah, and no, I think I'm thinking of um, Nomi's episode talking about, you know, the limitations. Of disciplinary thinking and, Mm. um, in terms of acceptable ways to engage communities, acceptable, like, philosophies of knowledge and, like, research methodologies and how, how she has tried to navigate that in her work Mm. and, like, challenge the, like, what the expectations are maybe within, like, her own disciplinary settings. And I think many of us have dealt with those issues of trying to navigate a research th- environments that are quite closed in terms of like what is valid or what is robust. Sometimes this takes a form of like navigating ethics committees, mm-hmm. but, but like you're saying, a lot of times it's in the form of just norms like disciplinary norms. Mm-hmm. And so that can come up like within your department or it can come up with uh, your reviewer in a certain journal, mm. or it could come up within like a professional organization or membership, mm. where you suddenly go outside the boundary of what's acceptable or what's accepted as science, you know. Mm. And suddenly, you're doing something that's advocacy or activism, yeah, <laughs> because you're 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 no longer objective enough. Some of that is what what um, Catherine McKittrick is getting at. Yeah, you picked out probably my favorite essay in that book for the, the the clip. And yeah. That's definitely something that stuck with me from that book, is is Disciplina's Empire. And you you know I love Anyana Roy's uh yeah. idea about being a double agent yeah. Yeah. in a in, an empi- in em- within an empire. And that's kinda how I see a lot of disaster scholars operating is is kind of as subversive agents within little empires. And I wouldn't like personally, I wouldn't say disaster studies is a is a discipline, but it's it's like a lots of people operating within disciplines which are empires, and hopefully, a lot of people are drawing on their interdisciplinary abilities and connections to unsettle their little empires. <laughs> That's like how I
1: see it. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's not just interdisciplinary kind of connections and thinking, but also lived experiences, right? I think Mm what we've been learning is that pretty much every single disaster researcher has some kind of story to tell, right, like a personal story. And I, I, I really, really love that. And in addition to everything else that absolutely inspired me in this season, one thing that i want to emphasize is that i have so much hope now and so much enthusiasm for the future of disaster studies you know be that discipline Mm. or not because if these conversations continue if the people that we've been talking to you know these early career researchers keep pushing the agendas that they're pushing it will be fantastic in 10 years time this will be a completely different field Mm -hmm. that would really reflect on the power and that would really challenge the kind of the normative and challenge the politics um, of disasters. And I think it would be just wonderful. So let's finish this with a clip from our audience participation episode that talks about hope.
0: Taking into account and respecting other epistemologies is a big one, uh, and understanding other epistemologies in in this context. And what really inspires me and 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 it's challenging too is to make space for hope and future, like not only about on suffering and what's difficult in connection to disaster, but what the people um, experiencing disaster hope for, What, uh, how they imagine their future and how we can support that uh, in the same way that we are challenging op- operations in our research and not reinforcing them. And one big thing for me is to challenge gender binary and heteronormativity in gender studies and gender management because and i say i would say we have to do that because i did i have the same limitation in my research right now in my phd research but it's super important that we go beyond looking only to men and women and thinking about people as uh, straight cis people because it's absolutely not the reality of everyone
2: okay so that is it for this season and um i also feel a lot of hope and inspiration after this season it's been amazing so i want to share a few of the upcoming um, activities that we're doing and the first thing is that we have a book group live stream coming up which will be on the 26th of may and we'll be discussing the book hope against hope which is by out of the woods collective and you may remember them from season three, a really cool episode with them. Um, but we'll be, be discussing their book. Um, as well as that, we're going to be hosting a special series of three live streams in June, which is um really cool to be involved in this, which is around IREC. Um, if any of you don't know that network, it's a network um, which is focusing on reconstruction, um, lots of amazing scholars of uh, disaster involved in that network and it's the 20th anniversary of the iraq network which is very cool and we're going to be celebrating with them by um helping to host those three live streams
1: and um, talking of live streams uh we are trying out something new for the next season season seven and we are going to change the format a little bit so um Once this season seven starts, we will be doing live streams more or less weekly on Wednesdays, um, and we will be releasing episodes in audio format as well after the live stream. Um, And also we will be doing a little reading group, a more kind of regular reading group than our book group. So lots of exciting stuff to come watch this space. We are really, really excited to share all this with you in season seven.
2: Yeah, it would be really cool if more people join us in reading, and I think yeah. that'll be a feature of our next season for sure. And we hope many of you will come along. And um, I, I know from talking to to different people that uh, listen that a lot of you share a passion for reading. So <laughs> um, we're excited about the direction that that's going to go. Um, we are anticipating starting the season on July sixth. And there will be an, an, and there will, of course, be an audience participation episode. So we are going to post a question on our Twitter soon for that participation episode. So just keep an eye out for it. And, um, please join us and, and be involved in the season, whether it's through that or by reading with us. Um, so that's it for the season. Thank you all for coming along with us and learning with us and growing with us and um i appreciate you ksenia thanks for hosting another season with me i know it's a lot of work but um it's it's always enjoyable it's a lot of fun
1: (laughs) (laughs) thanks all see you in a couple of months
2: Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast.
1: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Disasters Deacon.
2: The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
1: And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you.
2: You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.